new CBS Sunday. You collect rewards, right? This is how I make my living. When something is lost, everyone's looking for something. He finds it. You strong swimmer? So-so. So-so. So-so's okay. Justin Hartley stars. I survive. You make quick, smart decisions. You never let panic take the wheel. Sounds cool. It is cool, actually. Very cool. Tracker. New Sunday on CBS and streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kira Mulvaney. Uh, Eric has been one of those days. I've been in a bit of a snotty mood all day, which isn't particularly unusual, but Kevin's for sports. I, I tell you, I know we earn our living from professional sport, you and I, but there are times when I roll my eyes at, at like the absurdity of sports fandom, and I include myself in this. You know, uh, look, for, for me, as you know, as I've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast, my one big sports team is Liverpool Football Club, and I sometimes chuckle at the fact that I really want this bunch of people I don't know who wear one particular set of laundry to be way better at kicking a ball than other bunches of people I don't know who wear a different set of laundry. And and the way in which their success at kicking this ball can affect my mood. It's just, it's incredible to me. But anyway, um, today, right, with the Premier League season is winding down, there's only a week left, and um, Liverpool desperately needed a win, right? And only a win will do. It's the 94th minute uh, the very last minute, and the score is just 1-1, right? And if they don't win, their season's toast. It's all horrible. Last effort of the game, Liverpool win a corner. And when it's that late and it's that desperate, you, you send the goalkeeper up. Uh, I think you do that in hockey sometimes, right. too, right? And and you, you send him up, and so you've got an extra man in the penalty area. So anyway, corner comes in. The goalkeeper leaps up, heads the ball in the net, and scores. It's the first time a goalkeeper has scored for Liverpool since the club was founded in 1892. (laughs) Cue absolute bedlam, laughter all around, tears all around, especially from the goalkeeper. He's had a rotten year because his dad died in a freak accident just like a couple months ago. So I'm jumping around because the people I don't know but who wear the right laundry have won in dramatic fashion at the last moment. And I remind myself, oh, yeah. Sport is kind of stupid and can enrage and infuriate and frustrate us, but you know what? Sometimes it's pretty damn cool. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I, I'm I'm happy for you. You almost made soccer sound exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I kid, uh, so, sort of. Uh, actually, my um my gambling podcast partner for my day job, he's a huge golf fan, and he's always going on and on about golfers and golf tournaments, and that is really barely even a sport it's it's in the gray area between sport and physical skill contest it's somewhere in between those two you know along with bowling billiards and so forth darts Darts, yeah so if i can humor him when he gets enthusiastic about golf i can certainly roll with your occasional soccer story um but but really what that one triggers for me is the value boxing provides to me as a sport i can love and feel passionate about without really caring who wins most of the time. Right. Um, occasionally, there's a fighter I love or a fighter I hate or a fight I've bet on. Uh, but most of the time, I'm watching just as a fan of the sport. And that's a nice change of pace from watching my Eagles, Phillies, 76ers, and Flyers combine for two titles in their last 150 or so tries. <laughs> um, rooting for laundry is high highs and low lows. And so 
I appreciate the respite boxing gives me from that, where I'm watching it for work and I'm watching it for the love of the sport, but I'm not emotionally invested in the outcome as compared to you and your Liverpool kicky ball men. You know, it's funny, right? Because, and I'm sure it's the same for you, that that my my relationship to boxing has been completely different over the 20 years or so that I've been involved in it at different levels you know writing about it and, and commentating on it than it was when i was a fan right it's just a, it's just different you get to know the boxers you also have to have a completely different attitude toward it and it's more like you said exactly like a real fan and appreciating the sport but you know you don't root for a particular fighter or whatever and i have you know I, i've had people say to me oh would you ever be interested in like writing about soccer or writing about liverpool and i'm like it's the one little bit of fun I have in my life, <laughs> right. right? I can just be a kid. And, and like the moment it becomes part of my job, it will ruin this one little part of my life that I still have to get excited and annoyed and aggravated and irritated and depressed about. And much as I curse the fact that it's a part of my life, I, I kind of like it as it is. I would not want to get involved with it professionally. <laughs> yeah, that, if that's what you have to tell yourself to excuse the fact that nobody has offered to pay you to write well, about it. Well, that's <laughs> All right. Uh, this week on the podcast, which Eric and I do very professionally as we yes. cover boxing dispassionately, uh, as Eric suggested at the end of last week's show, he will be running across the roof of a car to dropkick me with his list of boxing's all-time top five outside the ring encounters. And if you don't understand that reference, you're going to want to listen to the top five list. Uh, we will also discuss some newly announced Showtime fights. Uh, the latest, including some last-minute uh, updates on Fury versus Joshua. And we will preview the 140-pound championship fight next week between Josh Taylor and Jose Ramirez. But we start with this past Saturday night's action on Showtime. Shortly one particularly interested party, Stephen Fulton, will join us to share his insights and talk about the man he is slated to face next. But first, Eric and I will offer our thoughts on Brandon Figueroa's emphatic body shot knockout of Luis Neri in the seventh round of a very Dignity Health Sports Park triple header at Dignity Health Sports Park. Yeah, there's just something about that place, huh? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, no, no fight of the year candidates on this card, but every single round of all three fights delivered action. The fights were all competitive. And in the main event, as you mentioned, it was the 24-year-old heartbreaker, Figueroa, who kept his unbeaten record while Neri lost his. Figueroa now 22-0-1, 17 KOs, while Neri falls to 31-1. Figueroa promised us action and aggression, and he delivered those from the opening bell, but without great results early on. He was smothering his own punches, and Neri was landing inside Figueroa's wider shots. I had Neri sweeping the first three rounds. Then the momentum began to shift. Trying to keep up with Figueroa's insane pace started to wear on Neri, and he changed up his game plan, did some jabbing and moving, which was scoring points for him, but maybe sapping his legs and his wind a bit. The fight was close through six. The judges were actually split. And then Figueroa went up a level in round seven. With both fighters reddening around the eyes, the young man from Westlaco, Texas, started landing more and more clean shots. Neri was clearly slowing down. He tried to buy time, claiming to be fouled, but the ref wasn't buying it. And moments later, in an exchange, Figueroa buried a left hook around the bottom of the rib cage, and Neri went down, and at 218 of the round was counted out. According to CompuBox, Neri outlanded Figueroa to the body 76 to 11, 
but it only takes one to render those nope. stats moot. Uh, Kieran, you predicted the Figueroa win, although not quite like this. How impressed were you with him? And did you sense his game plan was largely about tiring Neary out and not necessarily caring about winning rounds along the way? So there's plenty to be impressed with. Uh, and at the same time, as is often the case of Figueroa fights, also plenty to give you pause and think that, you know, at some point against the right opponent, he's going to come unstuck. Um, and yeah, it's it's super easy after the fact to insist that your plan all along was for the fight to unfold exactly the way it did. But given what we know about Figueroa and what we've seen of him, I, I think it does make perfect sense that that was indeed the plan all along. Um, I, I was surprised that it worked as well as it did. I, I, as you alluded to, I did think, and as I said last week, I thought it would actually be very close and that ultimately, you know, Figueroa's work rate would, would just carry the day with the judges. Um, but in the event, as you, as you said, you know, Neri was matching him, at, at least in the early going in that regard. Uh, I, I was surprised at how early and swiftly that began to unravel for Neri. Uh, like you, I had uh, the Mexican winning the first three rounds. But then after Figueroa turned it up a notch in the fourth, like you said, you could tell it was having some effect because that's when Neri just, you know, he was boxing and moving in the fifth yep. as if he was already trying to catch, like either trying to catch a second wind or, or just he wanted to keep Figueroa off him. And then, you know, Figueroa turned it up a gear again. Um, although I think perhaps by the end, it wasn't solely Figueroa moving up a gear as much as it was Neri sort of hitting the wall in the face of Figueroa's relentlessness, right? right? Um, uh, I, I guess, I don't know. I, I guess, you know, one of the things you, you touched on this already, the, the glass half empty assessment, if you're looking at Figueroa, is that yes, he's got this tremendous engine and yes, he's tough as hell to fight. And yes, he grinds you down. And, and maybe he's, he's silencing finally the narrative that a guy with his physique should be boxing from the outside rather than fighting in a phone booth. But he's not always maximizing his effectiveness in that aggressive style. It's fine to, you know, bend low and dig in close, but there's no harm in jabbing your way in to do that. Because uh, if you do that, it enables you to keep that little bit of space to get maximum leverage with his punches. And and just as, as you talked about, there were times where Figaro just kind of chunters forward without throwing and suddenly he's on top of his opponent without any real room to move. And he, he doesn't have the space to work properly. He's smothering his own punches, but he's so close that he's giving opponents especially opponents with shorter arms and faster hands, the opportunity to hit him. Um, and I think part of his extra success at the end was whether it was because Neri was trying to get that little extra distance and get away from him. He had that little like half space to work with, and, and that just seemed to allow his punches to land that much more cleanly on on Neri. And, and so... You know, those are the things I think that Stephen Fulton's going to be looking at very closely. You know, especially somebody who, you know, we've we've seen the way that he can sort of undo different opponents. He he will be analyzing that if he if he hasn't been already and thinking, yeah, those are the kind of things that I I need to to home in on. So yes, as always with Figueroa, there are flaws uh, in the way he went about it, but he went about it. He did what he had to do. Scored a very, very impressive victory, and and he does have to be taken very seriously as a as a major player in what is a ridiculously packed <laughs> division. Yeah. But before we talk about him and his future, uh, I do want to touch base uh, and get your thoughts on what all of this meant for for Neri. Where did it go wrong for him on Saturday night? Like we said, it started so well. How did it turn? Why did it turn? There was some talk afterwards, and Stephen Fulton said this, that he was just not big enough to have major success at 122 pounds. Do you agree with that? Uh, and do you think he can bounce back from this? 
So I wouldn't think the move from 118 to 122 should be that big of a deal. It's not like he's short for a junior feather and has trouble reaching mm. his opponents. He looks just fine at the weight. I guess his power, the effectiveness of his punches, is a bit diminished at 122. That's normal for power to reduce as you move up in weight. And he did struggle to make weight at 118 and often held a size advantage there. Certainly gone now. I don't know. I mean, he's only 26. Can't imagine mm-hmm. he's in any way washed already. Right. I think this is one of those losses that you don't want to make sweeping generalizations about. You don't want to draw huge conclusions. It could just be what happened against this opponent on this night. And, hey, we want fighters to face challenging opponents. When they do that, they lose sometimes. If after every loss we play the what the hell is wrong with that loser, he must be washed game, how can we expect boxers to ever take risks? Um, I think Figueroa's unrelenting pressure and pace just got to Neri, simple as that. It looked like a good style matchup for him for a few rounds, but beneath the surface, it was a bad style matchup for him all along. It just wasn't showing until about the fourth round. Um, And I wonder if maybe Neri's previous fight caused him to fight the wrong fight here. Mm. Um, You know, he boxed too cautiously against Aaron Alameda. It was boring. He took criticism. So this one, he stood in there and traded and fought at Figueroa's pace. And maybe that was a mistake. Maybe if he had come out jabbing and moving, the fight Mm. plays out differently. I'm not sure, but maybe. Um, So to me, this loss is partially about the style of the fight, maybe a little bit about Neri's punches not being as effective at 122. And I expect he will bounce back to some extent, but I also wouldn't be surprised if he's a guy who's going to lose more often than he wins when fighting elite opponents the next few years. He's in a really tough division, and there might just be four or five guys here who are better 122-pounders than Neri is. Mm, yeah. So shifting back to Figueroa, we all know what's next for him. We knew the plan going in. Figueroa faces Stephen Fulton on September 11th. My first instinct is to say that Fulton versus Figueroa looks on paper a lot like Fulton versus Angelo Leo. Reasonable comparison? Or am I, the guy who picked Neri to stop Figueroa, underestimating Brandon again? Um, you know, on one level, uh, that was the thought that came to my mind, that the mm-hmm. similarity there with with um, with Angelo Leo for, for Stephen Fulton. But there are differences, right? So, you know, I think Leo is more relentlessly focused on the body, whereas, as you mentioned, Figueroa is actually being outthrown and outlanded to the body. I guess there's a similarity in that both Leo and Figueroa have an assortment of forward gears, none of them lower than about fourth, um, and not much by way of neutral gears or reverse. Uh, But I think Leo, I don't know, he strikes me as a way, perhaps a slightly smarter fighter in terms of how he focuses his offense, Mm. whereas I think Figueroa you know, just turns on the ignition and just goes and floors it and just right. goes for it. Um, it. It feels as if Figueroa goes into his fight with a plan to just outwork and out hustle his opponent without necessarily having a plan B or C, but then maybe he's just never needed to go to a plan B or C. Um, I think what's interesting is that I think because he is, you know, his volume uh, of punches, I think, is higher than, than Leo's is. And it's just is so relentless. Mm. It, it's it's interesting. Like, I wonder whether 
that will make it more difficult for Fulton to time him or pick his spots and, and counter. I, I'm really curious to see. You know, we saw Fulton tear up that script once already. We didn't expect him to fight Angelo Leo the way that he fought him. And it'll be interesting to see if he does so again and if he goes back to that same script or if he has another one entirely. Like, does he does he look to counter punch uh, a punch between uh, Figueroa's punches? Some of those punches, they're not. He's not the fastest hand guy, Figueroa, and he can he can throw a bit wide. So so is Fulton going to be really happy to try and like punch between those punches off the counter, or does he decide that the best plan for him is to stop Figueroa coming at him fast by being the one to step forward and take it to him. I I don't know. I think that might be more difficult against Figueroa than it was against Leo. But obviously we'll see. And that's one of the intriguing aspects of it. We know that Stephen Fulton has a plan B and a plan C and a plan <laughs> right. D, right? We've seen that. Yep. So uh, I think it is intriguing. You sort of know what you're going to get from Figueroa. Jeremy Renner returns to Paramount Plus for a brand new season of the original hit series, Mayor of Kingstown. My job is to create a balance. Avoid a war. From executive producer Taylor Sheridan, co-creator of Yellowstone. There's some new players in town, and they brought the flag. And Antoine Fuqua, director of Training Day. I know it's always been a war zone, Mike, but this is next level. The mayor is back in business. Are you warning me? You're going to find out. Mayor of Kingstown. New season streaming June 2nd, exclusively on Paramount Plus. The chilling new original docuseries on Paramount Plus. Why did he kill his family? The answer lies across the ocean in a woman named Sylvie. She's a can model. Where desire leads to deception. I ended up spending twelve and fifteen thousand dollars a day. It was addictive. I can't get you out. And obsession leads to murder. Who did this to your family? You can't really maintain a fantasy forever. Control Alt Desire now streaming on Paramount Plus. But it's not always the case that just because you know what's coming that you know how to deal with it. Uh, so I think that's going to be one of the intriguing things is to see how Stephen Fulton uh, responds to what Figueroa brings. Yeah. Uh, Saturday's co-feature took place in this same red-hot 122-pound division. Uh, it ended with the winner also calling out the Figueroa Neri winner, but he's going to have to wait his turn. Uh, Danny Roman and Ricardo Espinosa slugged it out for 10 rounds of bombs away action. Uh, the underdog Espinosa had some success early, but Roman swept every round on the judges' cards from the fifth on, landing an array of uppercuts in particular. Once It's the year of the uppercut, or the 18 months of the uppercut <laughs> right yeah. now. It's amazing. Uh, bloodying Espinosa's nose around eight, and, and just his face just got bloodier from there. I was starting to think that my prediction of a cut stoppage in round 10 was remarkably on the money, but Espinosa did tough it out. And last the distance. Uh, the judges favored Roman 97, 93, and 98, 92 twice. Uh, he is now 29, 3, and 1, while Espinosa falls to 25 and 4. You predicted Roman by majority decisions, so not quite as close as you expected it to be. What allowed him to separate himself from Espinosa in the second half of the fight? And, you know, we talked about him before, perhaps being a bit underestimated. Does he belong right in that mix with Figueroa and Fulton based on this performance? So answering the first question first, I think it was Roman's cleverness and versatility that separated him. Espinoza is good and tough as hell, but ultimately kind of one-dimensional. Roman can do more things. He yep. can counter, and in the third round, he, he started to get the timing for his counters down. You mentioned the uppercuts. That's a punch I don't know if Espinoza has in his arsenal. And mm. once Roman started landing those fight was as good as over um he's a smoother puncher than espinoza and 
after about four rounds, Espinoza just ran out of new moves to show Roman, whereas mm-hmm. Roman still had plenty of wrinkles to reveal. This is why they fight 10 and 12 rounds at the top level. In a, a four-rounder or a six-rounder, you won't be able to tell which of these two fighters is better. After 10, it's clear which fighter is superior. As for whether Roman is right to call out Figueroa, whether he belongs in that mix with Figueroa and Fulton, yeah, he, he's definitely in that mix. Would absolutely have a shot at beating those guys, but Fulton Figueroa is the fight I want to see. Yeah. Um, I'm happy to have Roman wait. Maybe he gets a rematch with Akhmedaliev in the meantime. Maybe he fights Raiz Halim, or maybe he plays it safe and faces a C-level guy and waits for his shot at the Fulton Figueroa winner. We'll see. Uh, His win over Espinoza didn't create some sort of mandate for Roman to cut the line and get the next crack, but it did help confirm that he belongs in that conversation. Yeah, agreed. So in our picks competition, uh, you gained a point on me in the main event by having the right winner, but not the right method of victory. And I gained a point on you in the Roman fight by saying decision while you predicted a stoppage. The opening bout was the one we agreed on, both predicting that Xavier Martinez would beat Juan Carlos Burgos by unanimous decision. And that's exactly what he did. So I maintain a one point lead. It's now 27 to 26. Uh, This was another outstanding action fight over 10 rounds. Uh, This was at a catch weight of 132 pounds. The veteran Burgos applying pressure from the outset, while Martinez was frequently landing the cleaner punches. And I thought showing good defense, picking off a lot of punches, which was the difference for me in giving Martinez a lot of close rounds. They capped off the 10th round with an exchange that reminded me a bit of those Morales Barrera highlights. Hmm. Uh, But in the end, I had Martinez winning comfortably on my scorecard, 98-92. All three judges had it 99-91 for Martinez, who is now 17-0, each of those judges giving Burgos only the fourth round as he drops to 34-5-2. Some on Twitter had the fight closer, and the crowd booed the decision, presumably disliking how lopsided the scores were. What did you think of the scoring, Kieran? And would you say this was exactly what Martinez needed on the heels of his two-knockdown scare versus Claudio Marrero last time out? I thought scoring was fine, maybe a tiny wide. I had it run one round closer than you at 97-93, but if 99-91 doesn't really give Burgos the benefit of any doubt, it's also hard to disagree with it. Um, Some rounds were very close. Um, Yeah, and we've talked about this before, about how the rigidity of the 10-point must system isn't always totally reflective of the totality of the fight, right? Right. Like, not all 99-91s are the same. I I suspect that's why the crowd was booing, not necessarily because they felt Martinez didn't win, but because Burgos didn't get any credit that they felt he deserved for his effort. Um, So, as for what I thought about the performance, I don't feel that it was exactly what Martinez needed. Um... You know, on the one hand, yes, it was a clear win against a dangerous and experienced opponent. Uh, And it was, as the guys on commentary noted, another step, another part of the learning process, as was the comeback win against Marrero. Um, But taking a step back and looking at it, I mean, the one thing that you said when you asked me last week, what did I want to see from Xavier Martinez? I said I wanted a drama free fight from him. Like I wanted him to, you know, to show that he could just control a fight very calmly. I don't think it was that. I, I feel that, you know, he's starting to get himself drawn into brawls that are perhaps a little bit more grueling than they need to be now. And and I think that even when you wind up a clear winner from a fight like that, like he did, and I agree with your assessment of it, they 
you know, brawls, these kind of brawls can take that little bit out of you. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit early in his career to be doing that, I think, as often as he's starting to do that. So, yeah, yeah again, a good win. Uh, another step toward true contendership. But if you look at this in totality, I don't know that he's separating himself from his opponents to quite the extent that he was a few fights ago. And fair enough, right? You'd expect that as the quality of opposition improves. And yes, I recognize also, this is probably the best way for him to fight this particular fight. He probably assumed Burgos would try to box him. That's how Burgos has generally gone into fights. He can generally, as we talked about last week, can be a bit dull. It was probably surprised to him that Burgos decided to make it a fight. And then when he did, Martinez probably thought, oh, well, he's going to fight my fight and I'm beating him at it. So we'll keep doing it all fine. So I'm not criticizing his plan or the way that he fought. I guess it's just that I guess if this is the way it's going to be for him going forward, then maybe his career is going to be that bit shorter and maybe a little bit shy of the peaks that I had assumed a while back. He might not turn out to be quite the blue chipper I had thought he might be. But I think he's showing plenty to suggest that he'll get a chance to at least fight for a world title. Mm-hmm. He could very well win a world title. One thing he is doing, I think, is making a strong case for himself as a great action fighter, yep. almost a must-see fighter, who's going to get TV dates easily. He's certainly somebody I'm going to encourage people to watch, and he's certainly somebody that I will want to watch every time he fights. He's absolutely a favorite of mine to watch. I'm just a little bit less convinced than I was about necessarily the the heights and longevity of the career that he might have ahead of him. Yeah, he he and Brandon Figueroa both sort of fit that description that you don't know exactly how far they'll go they'll go and exactly how high the heights they'll reach will be, but they're establishing themselves as really consistently entertaining fighters, great yep. action fighters. They might turn out to be both great action fighters and just plain great fighters. Period. We don't know that yet, but the the great action fighter part seems pretty well locked in for both of these guys. Yeah, indeed. But like I said, he's definitely a favorite. And um, let's actually turn to another favorite of mine and of yours, I believe. Mm -hmm. Somebody who really is a blue chipper. Uh, Joining us now is someone who watched Saturday Night's Fight with a more informed and interested eye than most of us. Because on September 11th, he will be facing Brandon Figueroa on Showtime Championship Boxing. It is, of course, cool boy Steph, Stephen Fulton. Champ, welcome back to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. Thanks, I appreciate that. So, uh, so Stephen, you correctly picked the winner on Saturday night, uh, although it sounded like you expected a close decision in Figueroa's favor, uh, not the definitive knockout that we saw. Did anything that you saw from Brandon Figueroa surprise you at all? No, it, it, didn't, it didn't surprise me because I know he has the, the power, but it also didn't, didn't surprise me because as I was watching the fight, I seen that Louis Neri uh, what, didn't even have his legs underneath himself. So I, I feel like while I was watching the fight, we, me and my coach made the adjustments on the call and said, yeah, we think he was going to stop him. Hmm. So at, at, what, what, at what point in the fight was, was that? Because like, it seemed to me around, you know, around four, like, like, four, five, six, he started coming on four, more. Four, yeah. Like around four on out. And, and so, so the power that he ultimately showed, that one punch body shot knockout, that didn't, that didn't surprise you by the time it happened. No, that didn't surprise me at all. Okay. Mm. So, I mean, obviously, Figueroa, as we saw again on Saturday, he's he's got a lot of strength, but he doesn't seem to be 
super interested in defense. Um, when you're when you're sitting ringside watching these two guys, watching two guys both get hit a lot, how much are you licking your lips a little bit, knowing that you're getting the winner and you're facing whoever wins? You're facing a guy who doesn't like defense. A lot. <laughs> a lot. I'm a very accurate puncher. Yeah, and watching that at all, did that make you feel, I mean, obviously you've studied both guys before, but watching it, did it make you feel even more a little bit like confident about, about what might happen in September? Sure, for sure. Uh, as I was watching, it just confirmed that, all right, yeah, I'm really in the best. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and you will uh, get a chance to, to prove that uh, before too long here. And Figueroa, uh, Kieran was just talking about the the questionable defense that, that he showed, but offensively, he applies a ton of pressure, uh, and, and it did the trick in wearing Neary down. He reminds me in certain ways of the guy that you just beat, Angelo Leo. Do you think that's a reasonable comparison? Like, in what ways would you say Figueroa and Leo are, are the same, and in, in what ways are they different? They're, they're the same as in pressure, but different between their punch output and punch selection mm. and the way Brandon throws his off of the angles. So so is, is one, would you say Brandon is maybe a little trickier than, than, than Leo of the two? In, in his own ways. Okay. Mm. Okay. <laughs> are you are you playing it a little tight to a little close to the vest? Like you don't want to say too much about what you think of of Brandon in, ca- in case he hears what you say. Oh no, no, that's not that's no problem at all. You know, I'm always down to make any adjustment that that is needed. Okay. <laughs> all right. Yeah, talking about, talking about that issue. You know, we saw you know against Angelo Leo, and we talked to you about it. How you kind of like you know you you called an audible really once you got in the ring as, as to how you fought him. And 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 watching Figueroa. Uh, he obviously he loves to just come forward and apply a ton of pressure at a fast pace. Is one of the keys for you to try and stop him from doing that, or if necessary, are you quite happy to to to, to go in and let him do that, and, and you'll just find another way to beat him? I mean, uh, if he want to fight that way, we can fight that way. Hmm. But I have to fight the way I want to fight first, and then then I want to fight the way that in that type of style. Do you feel you've got like? the more variation, you know, that you can go to a plan A and plan B and plan C more than he can? Sure, for sure. Yeah, yes, that shows in my fight style. That shows, that shows from my last fight and the fight before that I have. That's, that's right there. It was two different styles. Right there alone, uh, we only seen one style from him. Um, so we know the date for that for that fight between you and, and Brandon. We know it'll be on September 11th on Showtime. We don't know the site yet. Um, I'm I'm a Philly guy like you. Uh, it's been a long time since we've had a big fight in Philly. Do you think there's any chance that fight might be coming here to to the Philly area, or are you expecting it to be in California or Texas, uh, somewhere like that? I would like it for the, for it, I would like for it to be in Philadelphia. If not, we could do it. We could open up at the Barclays Center. There you go. That's a good idea. So still, still, still on fans, the East Coast. It'll be a lot of fans coming out to open up because the Barclays Center will be back open. So it'll be a lot of fans. The first boxing show back at the Barclays. That'd be a hell of a lot of fans. Everybody in New York wants to come out. Yeah, yeah. that's that's a good call. I, I think that's a perfectly reasonable compromise. Uh, <laughs> if if we can't do it in Philly, Barclays will work. Um, the co-feature was also in your division. Danny Roman winning a, a war over Ricardo Espinosa, and, and he called out. 
um, the Figaro and Neri winner afterward, but he'll have to wait. But what do you think of Danny Roman? And, and, and is he potentially in your future after you fight Figaro? Uh, not not far as, as of right now that I know of. I, I believe uh, I want MJ. And mm-hmm. if I can't get that, I'll probably have to get either him or Nick Collins. Okay. Oh, okay. I believe he's number one for the WBC, and Nick Collins is number one for my WBO. So after I fight and, and win against Figueroa, I have two mandatory fights, right? Ah, uh, right. Yep. So it, it had to be out of them if I if I cannot get MJ for the to be undisputed. Right. All right. So so we've asked you a lot about uh, Figueroa and 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 about uh, boxing and 122 pounders and all that. Uh, I'm curious on a different subject uh how, how did you like doing live tv on saturday sitting at the desk across from brian custer were there were there any nerves when you're live on the air or were you feeling instantly relaxed in that setting i was relaxed i was more so cold but i was but i was relaxed <laughs> <laughs> i felt relaxed i felt uptight at first and then i just loosened up but okay. you know I, I just when i just be myself and let things come i do i do my best Okay. Did you start having uh, having visions in your head of a uh, of a post boxing career when you're when you're there on set talking into the microphone? For sure. Okay. For sure. <laughs> I, I I mean it, it's self explanatory the way I the way I talk and present myself. Yeah. I talk very well and a lot better than a lot of other boxers out there. Right. Yeah, you do. All right. As long as long as you don't come for our podcasting job, that's all. That's we right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't pay you enough. You'd you'd hate it. Um, hey, one last thing. Um, Eric and I answered a listener question recently. They, uh, he asked asked us who we thought the top three pound for pound guys would be in about three years from now. And my best guess for the future top three, it included two young Philly fighters. I thought you and Boots Ennis would be in the top three pound for pound in a few years. Do you think that's possible sure. or even likely? How do you feel about that? Hell yeah. yeah. I, think you, I think you're right. I know you're right. Yeah, what would that mean for Philadelphia, man? If I mean, you've, we've got you guys both really coming up. If, if we had both you and Boots like at the very top of the pound for pound, that would be amazing for Philly boxing, wouldn't it? It would, and, and it would be more amazing because we have other young fighters that's amateurs coming up from under us watching mm. us and wanting to do the same thing and pushing us and fighting and training as hard as we do. So that means we, we, we're setting the, the future future up, you know, and so that'll be good for the, the, the sport and Philly overall. Absolutely. All right. But until then, first, th- first things first, September 11th, you against Brandon Figueroa. Um, wish you all the very best for that when it happens. It's going to be an exciting fight. Everyone's going to be looking forward to it. And Hopefully, we will get to talk to you again just before and just after that. Thanks. I appreciate that. Thanks very much indeed, Steph, and uh, all the very best to you. Same to you. All right, let's move along to the tweet of the week. My turn to pick it. Uh, And you used one from the great Dick Hercules several weeks ago. (laughs) And I told you then that it wouldn't be long before I honored his Twitter skills as well. So that ship comes in this week. Uh, First, uh, congratulations to Mr. Hercules. Uh, Actually, his real name is Brent. Uh, So congratulations Ah. to Brent. He posted pictures of his pregnant lady. He's becoming a dad soon. So congrats on that. Hopefully he will pass his Twitter skills down to the next generation. Um, (laughs) Now on to his uh, tweet this week that caught my eye. It was a quote retweet. Uh, The original tweet was from TMZ, a headline. 
Logan Paul sparred four Gronkowski bros while training for Mayweather, quote, they're massive. And then a link to the TMZ article. Dick responded with a spoof headline, Carrot Top ran laps with all four Golden Girls while training for his race against Usain Bolt, quote, they're old. <laughs> Outstanding analogy and mockery. Um, Kieran, uh, how effective do you think sparring for 250-pound Gronkowski bros is in preparing someone for a boxing match against Floyd Mayweather? Do you think Carrot Top could take the last living Golden Girl, Betty White, in a race? Any other thoughts? Uh, I think it is marginally more effective than racing Betty White or the ghost of Estelle Getty <laughs> would be, for, but only marginally. Only marginally, yeah. Like, if he's really doing that, I mean, it was, inter- it was interesting to catch the, um, the, the, the Showtime footage mm-hmm. of the Gotcha Hat Gate right. um, <laughs> uh, during the broadcast and to catch uh, Logan Paul walking away like, oh, man, we got to get really serious about this stuff. Like, they really, it's, you almost wonder as if it just, the exactly what they're doing and what they're in for it feels like it just hasn't quite fully sunk in for the Paul <laughs> brothers yet, doesn't it? And well, certainly as evidenced by the fact that their sparring partners are an assortment of Gronkowski's. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, oh, uh, well, I'm sure Floyd's fine with it. So there <laughs> Probably, you <go>. yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, let's look ahead. Uh, coming off a fight weekend with only one major card worth discussing, the big Showtime card that we broke down earlier in the show, uh, we head into another such weekend. With all due respect to Sam Eggington versus Carlos Molina and Artur Spilka versus Lukas Rosansky, there's only one card we need to talk about. And it's headlined by about for the true junior welterweight championship of the world. Scotland's Josh Taylor, owner of two alphabet belts, versus Mexican-American Jose Ramirez, also the owner of two alphabet belts. Uh, Both are unbeaten. Taylor at 17-0 with 13 KOs. Ramirez at 26-0 with 17 stoppages. Taylor has been on a tremendous run the past three years, beating Victor Postol by unanimous decision, stopping previously unbeaten Ryan Martin, outpointing Ivan Baranchik, passing a tough test against undefeated Regis Progre, and then stopping overmatched Apinan Kongsong in one round in his only fight of 2020. Ramirez, over that same time period, decisioned previously unbeaten Antonio Orozco, eked out a disputed majority decision versus Jose Chon Zepeda, stopped Maurice Hooker in round six for what most would consider his career best win to this point, and beat Postol by majority decision. So they both have Postol on their records. Any conclusions, Kieran, that you can reach about this matchup based on their showings against that common opponent? And what's your anticipation, excitement level like for this with two unbeaten fighters in their primes battling for supremacy at 140? Um, So in terms of the common opponent, I mean, neither man beat Postol resoundingly and overwhelmingly. But outside of Terence Crawford, nobody beats Victor Postol resoundingly and overwhelmingly, although Taylor's was, as you mentioned, the the slightly wider win. Uh, You know, it is that said. The fact that these two men constitute two-thirds of the people in history to defeat Postol in a prize fight is testament to the caliber of this matchup. Um, but I think it's less about that one opponent than it is about their entire body of work. And as you know, Taylor's generally scored the more impressive wins against the slightly better quality of opposition. And it, it feels to me as if 
at age 30, Taylor is at his peak right now, whereas even though Ramirez is only a couple years younger, feels like he's still getting there a little bit. Um, I just think Taylor might be the more versatile of the two. It feels like he can beat you in a number of different ways. He can outbox you and he can knock you out. Uh, he's big, he's strong, he's a southpaw, he's very smart. I feel like uh, Ramirez is probably going to want to try to turn this into a brawl. He can't be outboxed, but he does have this you know, fight-ending power, especially to the body himself. He knows that. He knows that can be a blessing and a curse. I think you'll want uh, Taylor to get in close and fight his fight. Um, whereas Taylor, I think he's a bit better off boxing for mid-range and gradually turning up the heat. I think it's a terrific fight, not just because of the caliber of the two guys involved and the quality of the opposition that they faced, um, but also because it isn't one of those interesting potential style clashes and it's a case of who's going to be able to in impose their style on the other. Um I'm a little sad that it's – it feels like it's flying a smidgen under the radar. Like we've had yeah. so much discussion about it in the past and, and so much buildup for it. And, yeah, it's coming here. And I wonder if it's just unfortunate timing that it's coming at the time where suddenly boxing is being dominated by – retired boxers fighting retired MMA fighters and YouTubers. And I, I don't know, but um, I do expect an immensely high quality fight. Uh, I, and while I haven't sort of sat down and poured through video to the extent that we do when we're predicting Showtime fights, my sense is that the more likely results are either uh, Taylor by decision or Ramirez by late KO. Uh, and I'm curious Mr. Betting Man, what the sports books have to say about that. I, I, I did see somewhere that general the odds are pegging Taylor as a little more than a two to one favorite. And does that seem about right to you? Uh, and even though I just said that, I think that Taylor is probably more likely to score a points win. Uh, he did tell, tell Boxing Scene that he expects an action fight and said of Ramirez, I 100% believe he's there to be knocked out. So, do you agree with like what I was talking about there and how the fights could play out? And where would you set the odds on how likely we are to actually just see an all-out war as opposed to something more in the realm of a technical boxing match? Yeah, obviously, I'd love to see a war. Um, I do think there's a chance of a full-on technical boxing match just because we saw Ramirez go that route for the most part against Postal. But not with great results. Uh, mm. <laughs> I actually scored that fight a draw, as I recall. Um I wonder if maybe it was easier to just box, box, box without a crowd, whereas there will mm. be fans at this fight. Um, so so maybe that'll help push it toward us seeing two fighters in the ring, really trying to inflict damage, going for the knockout. I, I think what we'll likely see is something I might term a responsible slugfest. Uh, you know, <laughs> good good action. But neither guy ever getting out of control and going for broke, unless, you know, clearly behind late in the fight or something like that. Um, as for the odds on the fight, I've said all along, I think Taylor is a little more of a favorite than that in my mind. Mm -hmm. um, I'm seeing him, yeah, minus 225 up to minus 265. In my mind, I'd say he's more like minus 300, which would be a 75% implied chance of winning. Um, that's that's about how I see this fight. That there's a, about a 3 and 4 chance he wins. Ramirez is a very good fighter, but I've thought for a while now that Taylor can go a level or two higher. 
We've seen Ramirez barely squeak by against Postal and Zapata, fighters who I think are at least a half notch below Taylor. Nothing has changed for me in the run-up to this fight. It's an excellent matchup, determines the true champ at 140 pounds, but I don't have any trouble at all identifying who I expect to win. Uh, We should touch quickly on the co-feature. I ran it a bit recently when the Nevada Commission rejected Pedro Campa as Jose Zapata's opponent, but we haven't had a chance to address the replacement opponent they approved, 37-year-old veteran Hank Lundy. Kieran, can you think of any valid reason why Zapata Lundy is okay, but Zapata Campo wasn't? No, actually. I, I <laughs> All don't right, understand. moving on. Moving on. I, I, yeah, I don't understand it. I mean, yeah, I, I, granted, Campo doesn't have much of a record, but, you know, if Top Rank had tried to put him in with Jose Ramirez, then sure, okay, there's a reason to be, you know, put the brakes on that. But, you know, Zapata's coming off that monster brawl with Baron Chick, mm-hmm. and... Like you said already, he's a very good fighter, but he's not necessarily at that level. And unless I'm mistaken, I think that Campo was actually scheduled to and considered good enough to go up against Adrian Bronner until he had to pull out of that fight. Um, uh, so I don't know. Maybe they saw something on scans to set alarm bells ringing. Hmm. Maybe I actually think, and I think you talked about this when, when you first had that rant, that it just feels as if the days of Nevada being under... Mark Ratner, the sine qua non of boxing commissions, are, are, are over. Um, it's not their first odd decision, but there you are. I will say on their defense, I truly believe they're making these decisions and taking these actions for the right reasons, like they specifically fighter safety. But the problem is that these decisions seem to be quite arbitrary and capricious at the moment, yep. the, the ones they're approving and the ones they aren't. And I think people are fine with these kind of decisions if there's consistency there. And, and I don't know that we're seeing any consistency. And, and of course... You know, unless they explain their rationale behind some of them, then, you know, we're never going to sense if there is that consistency or not. Right. All right. Uh, Time for the news. And there's no doubt what the biggest news of the week is. It broke on Sunday afternoon, shortly before we were going to start recording this podcast. Tyson Fury shared a video on social media saying the Anthony Joshua fight is done. It's going to be on August 14th in Saudi Arabia. And he declared... This is going to be the biggest sporting event ever to grace the planet Earth. Uh, So we've heard from Joshua's side through Eddie Hearn saying the fight was just about done. And now we have it from the other side, despite Bob Arum casting doubt. If Fury says it's on, that probably means it's on. Although the papers are not signed yet, and that might take another week, according to Dan Raphael. But it sure seems like it's happening. This is massive news. It is also news about which there probably isn't much to analyze since we've already talked plenty about the buildup to getting this heavyweight championship fight done. So, Kieran, anything to add at this point? Maybe a reaction to Fury calling it the biggest sporting event in human history? (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, I'm very happy that it appears it's it's at least very close to being done. Um, And yeah, I don't know that there's much more to add. Um, You know, (laughs) it, it is by a country mile and then some the biggest fight to be made in boxing today which is why we've been following its progress so intently um one can forgive tyson fury for hyperbole but it's not even close to the greatest sporting event in history of course it isn't even the greatest heavyweight fight in history uh we just celebrated the 50th anniversary of that one um but you know what here's hoping it can match the 
drama and historical significance of, say, The Rumble in the Jungle and The Thriller in Manila, and what it already has in common with those, of course, is it completes the triumvirate of modern heavyweight title fights staged by murderous despotic regimes. <laughs> um, after Mabute Sese Seko and Ferdinand Marcos, now Mohammed bin Salman can take his place in odious sports washing. Um, look, by August, Wembley Stadium should, under present trajectories, and even with concerns in the UK over this new Indian variant uh, of COVID, it should be available to seat, if not a full house, then a very large number of fans. And for this event to be absolutely as big as, or even close to as big as Fury uh, says it is, it should be in front of British fans. Mm -hmm. It's two British fighters. The two best heavyweights in the world are from the United Kingdom. It is absurd that this fight is not in the United Kingdom and it's offensive that the fight that the place where it is going to be is Saudi Arabia. But I talk about this ad nauseum and nobody <laughs> listens to me. So, and as the saying goes, money doesn't just talk. It screams. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I kind of tuned you out for a second there, but I think what I'm gathering is uh, I'll, I'll see you in Saudi Arabia on August 14th. <laughs> yeah, there. Exactly. Yeah. I can't wait. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's it's easy for me to get there from my summer home in Dubai. So, <laughs> right. All right. The news co-main comes from the home network as Showtime continues to fill out its already loaded summer schedule. Uh, it's announcing the venue and undercard fights for the June 19th telecast. Uh, all we knew prior to this week was that the headline bout, uh, Jamal Charlo versus Juan Macias Montiel. Uh, but this week it was announced that the card will take place at the Toyota Center in Charlo's hometown of Houston. And two undercard fights were added, a crossroads clash between rising lightweight prospect slash contender Isak Pitbull Cruz and blood and guts ex-champ Francisco Vargas, uh, and the return of a man we've talked about quite a bit already on this podcast, Angelo Leo, following his defeat at the hands of this week's guest Stephen Fulton. He takes on Aaron Alameda in a battle of once-beaten 122-pounders. Obviously, we're going to analyze these fights in depth uh, about a month from now, but what's your initial reaction? Well, as we discussed with Steven Espinoza, Charlo Montiel is the most criticized fight on the schedule, and rightfully so. This undercard goes a long way toward making up for that. I like both of these fights. I do have concerns, as anyone should, about Bendito Vargas mm -hmm. maybe not having it anymore, suffering a fate against Cruz, similar to what Diego Magdaleno did not long ago, uh, or maybe not going out quite that quickly, but lasting a few rounds and getting busted up because... When was the last time his skin held up in a tough fight? So that's a concern. I think he's a great step up for Cruz if he has something left. If so, I love this as an action fight between the young up-and-comer and the old veteran looking to make one last run. It's hard to know if that will materialize. Uh, and then Leo Alameda, both coming off their first loss, keeping the spotlight on, on 122 pounds. Uh, that, that's perfect let one of these guys reinsert himself into the title picture while the other takes a step back. Uh, I, I like this card and I'm hopeful that an enthusiastic homecoming crowd in Houston will create a buzz to make Charlo's showcase fight feel like an event since we all agree it's not an A plus fight. So you need the right atmosphere to leave you entertained after what looks on paper to be probably a one-man show of sorts here. Right. Um, a few things to discuss on the news undercard. We have some fights moving around. Teofimo Lopez versus George Cambosos on Triller pay-per-view moves off June 5th to June 19th. 
and Evander Holyfield versus Kevin McBride is no longer on that card. That's said to be landing in August. I know, sad. <laughs> um, and Oscar De La Hoya's return, uh, I'll get another awe from you here, I suspect, uh, once said to be happening on July 3rd, has reportedly been backed up to September. Uh, two more quick items. Billy Joe Saunders underwent surgery in Dallas to repair multiple fractures of his orbital bone around his right eye following his loss to Canelo Alvarez. And British bantamweight Jamie McDonnell has announced his retirement at age 35, almost two years after his last fight. If indeed he stays retired, McDonnell finishes with a record of 30 wins, three losses, one draw, 13 KOs, eight successful alphabet title defenses at 118 pounds before Naoya and always stopped him in the first round in 2018. Kieran, anything you'd like to weigh in on among these items? Hats off, first of all, to Jamie McDonnell, who had a very nice career. Uh, uh, like he said, he held a title belt for some time, made a number of defenses. Uh, he was, I think, also British and Commonwealth and European champ. Uh, two of his three losses came early in his career. His third was to an all-time great, and he went 10 years between defeats two and three. So a very good career, and congratulations to him on, on getting out. All the best to him. Uh, I'm not sure how... Uh, Steven Espinosa and the rest of the team at Showtime feel now about Mayweather Paul going on Sunday, June 6th, instead of Saturday, June 5th, now yeah. that Saturday, June 5th is available. Uh, but then this particular card is so has such a unique and specific pool, it may not make any difference. Um, and, you know, talking about all those different Triller dates, uh, uh, it seems that the Triller guys have a new number one public enemy, and it's Dana White, <laughs> um, who went on an absolutely foul mouth rant about them recently did you see that no i missed day, this yeah. saying i you know they keep calling me because they want my fighters and and then it being dana white every other word began with f <laughs> and it was just i'm what the hell why do i have to answer their calls um and apparently uh, a little bit of news that that, that came out was he supposedly uh scuppered the one of the plans for the de la Hoya event i don't know if that's why de la Hoya has moved mm. to september apparently oscar was kind of focused on georges st pierre um the the retired mma great as his opponent um and but white nixed it because even though st pierre is retired he is still technically under contract to the ufc and he he just does not want ufc to be or ufc fighters to be a part of of any of these uh, sideshows so yeah kind of good for him yeah well i i have put my head in the sand pretty well when it comes to the day-to-day -day movements regarding yeah. oscar de la hoya's return who it'll be against when it's going to happen and all that so i i knew nothing of any of this and uh i'm not if sad, gets, not sad to have missed any of it if it gets RT'd into my timeline, that's the only way I find out about half of this stuff, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's, let's get rid of this thriller nonsense and let's focus on the, the fun part of the podcast here. It is top five list time. I'm very much looking forward to this one and to seeing how your list looks. Uh, last week, in the aftermath of the aforementioned Gotcha Hat Gate and the brawl that erupted between Floyd Mayweather, Jake Paul, and associated camps, uh, I challenge you. To come up with the all-time top five instances of fighter encounters outside the ring. Could be throwing down, could be entourage versus entourage, could be inciting bay in crowds. The one real parameter is it had to not be in the ring or in the you know the, the arena immediately post-fight. You specifically mentioned Bo Galotta as something that wasn't uh, 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 relevant for this. But fighters being fighters, there should have been plenty of material for you to choose from, <laughs> even with that. And you did tell me uh, during the week that you, have, you were having some fun with this. So, all right. 
floor is yours. Let's see what you came up with here. I'm, I'm really excited about this. Yeah, so I should start by noting that all of the incidents on my list are from the 1980s to present. Um, mm-hmm. The only one from before that I considered was Ali and Frazier brawling right. in the studio on ABC Wide World of Sports in 1974 during a Howard Cosell interview. Um, but it was just a headlock and a relatively harmless right. takedown, not violent enough or wacky enough to make my list. It's got to be strong in one of those two categories. <laughs> uh-huh. So, you know, worth mentioning for the names involved, but not an all-timer in my view. Otherwise, everything on my list is, is fairly modern because I couldn't find any good examples of press conference brawls or weigh-in brawls or whatever from the Jack Dempsey era or the, okay. the Ray Robinson era and so forth. Maybe some happened and they just aren't on film. Maybe I did a poor job researching and you'll let me know at the end something I missed. But just a heads up that my all-time list ended up being a modern list focused on the most memorable incidents of the last 40 or so years. Um, I can assure you in advance there will be no differences between <laughs> us in that regard. Okay, all right. Um, so the top four emerged for me fairly clearly Number five was a tougher call. Not a lot to separate my number five from all the honorable mentions that I'll run through at the end. But here is my number five. The year was 2001. Hasim Rahman had recently shocked Lennox Lewis for the heavyweight title, and they were signed for their rematch. And they were doing a live interview together on ESPN in a studio setting with a live audience. It wasn't the most violent brawl. It it wasn't weird or funny, but it was memorable for a few reasons. First of all, it started because of an argument that I don't think you'd hear today, or at least that would be handled differently by the moderator today if it started. Lennox taking offense to Rockman suggesting he's gay, and Rockman clarifying, I didn't say you were gay, I said what you did going to the courts to enforce the rematch was gay. It was only 20 years ago, but it was a very different time. Yeah. Uh, and, and this leads to Lennox insisting he's a woman's man and saying he'd prove it if Rachman has a sister. Uh, a bit out of character for Lennox, who undoubtedly yeah. did let Rachman get under his skin. Uh, and then Rock got upset about his family being brought into it. And they stood up and started wrestling. It was no better than the Ali Frazier studio action at first until the second wave of shoving sent them through a flimsy studio table and Rockman definitely outmuscled Lennox there. Mm-hmm. And I felt at the time it reinforced Rockman's mental edge over Lennox and helped lead me to pick him in the rematch, which was very wrong. Uh, anyway, seeing the heavyweight champ and former champ brawling with real emotion live on ESPN, it's clearly outside the top four for me, but I just found it very entertaining if a little un PC by today's standards. So yeah. I'm edging it into that number five spot. Yeah, and I, and I will say that also, I don't know how, we'll see how your list is, but mine also, not only are a lot of those, or all the fights like from the mid-80s onwards with these things, but an awful lot of them were in and around 2001, 2002. There was something in the water yeah. around, around this time. I'm not quite sure what happened there, but yes, no, exactly. And of course, it, it looked all the more impressive because Rock was wearing this like cut-off shirt and showing off these these giant biceps and Lennox always said he was never the kind of guy who would like get into a bar fight or get into much of a brawl. He just happened to be very good at boxing. And he was sort of felt like he was half interested in all of this. Um, and yeah, but yeah, like you said, there was, there was plenty of talk about, uh, oh, well, you know, rock showed that he's got the strength there. He, he put him through the table. Yep. Uh, and I do remember Teddy Atlas oddly being the voice of reason and saying, well, 
it doesn't actually matter because they're not going <laughs> to wrestle. <laughs> and so it proved. But yes, no, it's kind of a classic, not least because, and I've completely forgotten who the ESPN moderator was, but he just kind of basically just stood there going, guys, guys, <laughs> right, guys. He, did, he didn't quite know what to do, and he definitely yeah. didn't want to physically step in between them. Right. right. And like the Ali Frazier thing that you mentioned, the mistake or not mistake that they made was putting the two together not having the moderator in between and maybe that was intentional mm, right? right maybe that was because well, let's see what happens but yes <laughs> right. There you go. all right um at number four i have probably the most real full-on fight caught on video between two boxers outside the ring the year was 1994 herbie hyde was getting set to fight oh, michael yes. bent and at a pre-fight press event they were both dressed to the nines, Hyde in a checkered suit, bent in a suit with a bow tie. They were on a rooftop setting. The ground was wet. They're staring each other down. And before you know it, punches are being thrown. Real punches. Nice suits are getting ripped to shreds. Both guys are getting wet, rolling around in puddles. Um, afterward, Hyde showed off a split lip to the camera and called Bent a nut a few times. Um I like this one because of the ridiculousness of the setting and how well-dressed they were. And then <laughs> the, just the fact that they were throwing real punches, just completely failing to save it for the ring. This was quality, unsanctioned violence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd almost forgotten about that one, actually. Yeah, that was a great one. Hyde was a little bit off, actually. He was just one of those guys who, like, when he sort of encountered him out of the ring, it always felt that there was something, like, he was ready to to pop off and um and it was another instance right where you you look at Hyde and you think oh maybe he got the worst of it but he got the better of it in the ring i think as i recall actually so yeah. um what happens in the pre-fight unsanctioned rolling around in puddles <laughs> brawl is not necessarily representative of what happens in the ring no it is not um okay number three three words he glossed me Oh, yes. <laughs> um, again, this involves British heavyweights. Bit of a theme there. Um, this took place at the post-fight press conference following Vitaly Klitschko's win over Derek Chisora in 2012. David Hay was in the crowd, and he was trying to call out Klitschko, but he ended up jawing with Chisora. Chisora got up from the dais and walked into the crowd where Hay was, and they quickly started shoving Cameras and tripods went down. Adam Booth got a cut on his forehead oh. that was bleeding down his face, while Chisora, claiming Hay hit him with a bottle, um, although I don't believe there's footage showing a bottle attack, no. but that's what he claimed, uttered the immortal words, he glossed me. Uh, and then he uttered them about 50 more times with some F words to describe how he was glassed. Um, Hay also picked up a tripod and used it as a weapon at one point. Uh, then Chisora said a few moments later, I swear to God, David, I'm going to shoot you, which is not a very smart thing to say. Um, and then the camera turns to Vitaly, and he's just laughing, yep. which is wonderful. Yep. Um, but it was a scary scene and an unforgettable bit of outside the ring mayhem. Oh, the thing that I remember about that, apart from, you know, he glassed me, was just like, uh, was that exact thing that you just focused on, was was just bitterly just looking and smiling <laughs> yeah. and laughing. And I'm like, oh, my God, these people are so embarrassing. <laughs> um, and then, of course, they did meet Hay knocked Chisora out and mm -hmm. is now his manager. Hashtag boxing. Wait, Hay okay. is Chisora's manager? I don't know if, yes, I, if I realized that twist. Hmm. Yep. All right. He's, boxing, he's, baby. He signed me. Doesn't have the same ring as he glossed me. That's, that's right. yeah. He takes 10% of me wages. <laughs> All right. Um, number two, 
Lennox Lewis makes his second appearance. Um, These British heavyweights, man. Um, But I don't think this one was his fault at all. This was all about, and I don't mean this to be as insensitive as it's going to sound, but so be it. This was all about Mike Tyson being off his meds. Um, I I don't mean that flippantly. It's just the fact that Tyson was a loose cannon at the time when not properly medicated. And based on his actions and his words on this day, I have to assume he was not properly medicated. Uh, Anyway, press conference to announce their massive heavyweight championship fight. They're supposed to stand on two podiums across from each other. There was a misunderstanding and Mike, Mike thought he was supposed to approach Lennox. One of Lennox's guys put a hand on Mike to hold him back, and Mike fired a left hook at him. Then Lennox threw a right hand at Mike. Neither landed cleanly, but it was pure chaos from there, and comedy with the orchestral entrance music still playing throughout. (laughs) Um, The brawling went on a while. Lennox said Mike bit him on the thigh while they were rolling around on the ground, which... I think we know that's within the range of possible things Mike Tyson (laughs) would do. And then it ended with Mike cursing out writer Mark Malinowski saying a whole lot of stuff. I choose not to repeat, but it was deeply unhinged. He promised to uh, have sex with Malinowski until Malinowski loves him. Um, It was... uh, the, the early 2000s were an interesting time with regard to homophobic speech. Um, nope. Like a lot of things on this list, parts of this fracas were entertaining and hilarious. Parts were scary and troubling. But the Tyson Lewis press conference ball has to be on the list. I've got it at number two. Yeah, absolutely. What could you say? I'm pretty sure I saw a photograph of a chunk taken out of Lennox. Yeah, now that you mentioned that, I remember seeing seeing that, yeah. Yeah, that was just, I don't know. And that was finally it, wasn't it? That was, even though the press conference is in New York, I think, if I recall correctly, at that stage, Lewis Tyson was going to be in Las Vegas, right? And that was when Vegas was like, you know what? We're finally done with you. <laughs> right. I and think that's what finally prompted it going to Memphis, if I recall correctly. Yeah, I think you're right. And and I definitely remember a lot of speculation at the at the time that this press conference brawl had just blown up the fight and that it wasn't even going to happen because I, of this nonsense. But yep. it did, unfortunately for Mike. <laughs> all right i know what your number one's gonna be I'm yeah sure I yeah i think we foreshadowed it quite a bit uh this is <laughs> this is the one i mentioned last week when you gave me the assignment first thing that came to mind i wasn't sure in the moment it would be number one but after careful consideration it has to be number one for sheer ridiculousness for sheer wwe-ness for an ability to make me laugh out loud every time i watch it Nothing compares to Larry Holmes versus Trevor Burbick with Larry actually running across the roof of a car and leaping at Burbick feet first, delivering a flying drop kick. This incident was featured on the TV show, A Current Affair. That gives you a sense of how over the top it was. Uh, This was in 1991. Holmes had just won an easy comeback fight against Tim Doc Anderson. And post-fight at the Diplomat Hotel in Hollywood, Florida, he and Burbick, who he fought 10 years earlier started jawing at the press conference. Burbick made some wild accusations about Larry hiring a prostitute, Jenny from Jacksonville, to split up Burbick and his wife. Uh, Holmes tracked him down, found him, reportedly kicked and punched Burbick a few times, though I don't think there's footage of that. Burbick ran out into the street, and Holmes found him again, ran across the tops of two parked cars and delivered the dropkick. And it's just hilarious how the cameras caught it. It's like something out of a monster movie. There's Burbick. Yeah. 
and then everyone looks in one direction off camera and people scream and shriek and there in the corner of the screen 40-year-old Larry Holmes emerges atop a car and Coco bewares Burbick. It's amazing. If it hadn't been caught on film, I wouldn't believe it. Quite possibly yep. the most hilarious act of violence in boxing history. I don't even know if I would put the qualifier on there, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> Take out you. the possibly, definitely I the most so. hilarious. Okay. I think so. And it's just, it just stands the test of time yep. 30 years later. It's just gold. <laughs> yep. It's it, it's like some of those viral video clips that we see on Twitter now that like you watch it once and you laugh and you watch it and then it replays it immediately. It's a quick clip and you laugh again and six, seven viewings in, it's still making you laugh out loud. That's this. When, when Larry emerges running across the car, you can't not laugh. And I, I swear, there's like a fraction of a second beforehand where Burbick just gets these bug eyes. Yes. As he just, yep. Right? <laughs> he just sees what the hell's about to happen. It's just, oh, it's gold. Yep, gold. It is. Okay, some quick honorable mentions. Um, not quite a confrontation between fighters, but rather one between one fighter and an angry mob. Bernard Hopkins fleeing for his life in Puerto Rico after throwing down the flag while facing off with Felix Trinidad. Um, Marco Antonio Barrera sucker punching Eric Morales at a presser. One of the cleanest punches ever landed at a press conference setting. Um, Amir Khan splashing a drink on Phil Logreco was kind of fun. Oh, I forgot about that one. Yeah, it was a good one. Uh, Derek Chisora again throwing a table toward Dillian White at a presser. Might have made the top five, but it didn't really escalate from there. He threw the table and then it didn't it didn't go any further. Um, and the famous Mike Tyson, Mitch blood green brawl, which might've made the list if there were footage of it. Um, and again, I, I assume I missed something pre 1980s. Uh, maybe one of our listeners will let, let us know if indeed there was something, uh, from, uh, a prior time, but, uh, that's, those are the ones I was considering anything I left off there. Mm, only a couple of other ones, uh, Riddick Bow, Larry Donald. Oh, um, right. Yeah. Um, uh, at the press conference before their scheduled December 1994 bow, um, Donald was taunting Bo, and Bo and Bo and his people, man, they were nasty. <laughs> um, yeah. And you could tell that Donald was standing there with his hands behind his back, and that didn't stop Riddick. He cracked him with a sucker punch. And then I hadn't actually fully appreciated this till much later that afterwards at the post-fight press conference, Bo. Like Donald had a lawyer who tried to serve Bo with papers at the post-fight presser for like assault or something, um, and Bo just got up and ran away or something, so he couldn't be served. I, I thought that was kind of a bitch move by Larry Donald, but there you go. Um, little surprise he didn't mention this. I guess it wasn't much of a brawl, but given that you did an oral history on this, um, the Fernando Vargas Oscar de la Hoya, one of their press conferences, did get into enough of a match that Ricardo Jimenez, who is the top-ranked publicist. Right. Ended up breaking his leg. Yeah, um, as he got pushed off. Um, it was but, it was you know. it was a little bit like uh, Barrera Morales, um, but a poor right. man's version in terms of what happened between the two of them because Barrera Morales was just a, a a better, cleaner punch landed. But yeah, yeah. Uh, that could have been mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, and then the only other one that I remember, and I've forgotten the year actually, and there's no way that reason for you to have known this because it was a very British fight mm-hmm. in like the mid 1980s. I think it was. It, best an eliminator for the British middleweight title between uh, two guys called Mark Kayla and Errol Christie, who not only brawled once, they brawled twice at two separate events, um, almost hide bent like, like rolling on the ground. And to the extent that they almost canceled the fight because there was a big racial element. Kayla was white, mm. Christie was black. And 
concerns were raised in Her Majesty's Parliament about <laughs> the whole thing. Uh, but no, those are the ones that, that came to mind. The great thing about I came across the Tyson Green one, and I agree with you that if it were on video, it'd be a different matter. Mm -hmm. But I did find Tyson talking about it on his podcast. That's mm. hilarious. Oh, okay. Just I'll listening to, to Mike out. Tyson talk about it. And he's talking about how, you know, he'd just gone to get some like nice clothes sorted and something like that. And he goes, yeah, but you know, I was a bit drunk and, and I was with my people. And, and then we found, and it's so funny the way he talks about like, you know, Mitch Blood Green confronts him and Tyson's, you know, by his telling, like decks him and basically knocks him out. And he goes, but he's on like the angel dust. So he like wakes up immediately and I'm like, oh my God, do I hit him again? And he goes down again. And it's just the whole description of Tyson laughing and talking about that is worth looking up. Hmm. All right. But at, at no point, uh, as far as I know, did he tell Mitch Bloodgreen that he would have sex with him until he loved him. So I don't know that he didn't. I, right. As, as far as I know, I wish there were footage. Right. <laughs> There's probably a lot of stuff that went on there that, uh, would make the footage fun to watch yeah. and yeah. and you know someone who's good at uh editing videos and stuff create the video of the tyson green brawl and then insert larry holmes running across a car and uh drop kicking them both that's what i want to see on on twitter by uh tomorrow morning dick hercules are looking at you yes <laughs> get to work <laughs> oh my god that's that segment was even better than i thought it was gonna be it was fun oh, excellent my... oh my god well done. Uh, there you go all right that will do it for this week's episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Thanks again to our guest, Stephen Fulton. We will be back next week with our post-fight thoughts on Taylor Ramirez. And we will have an in-depth breakdown of the May 29th Showtime card. Headlined by Nonito Danayar against Nordin Ubali. <laughs> One day we've got to get Nonito on the show and we've got to clear up that pronunciation <laughs> of his name. Uh, until then, thank you for listening. Be safe, be kind. Should you ever set foot outside of the hotel, you will be shot. Don't miss the new Showtime limited series based on the international bestseller. For the last four years, I've been a prisoner. Why are they keeping you here? Starring Emmy Award winner Ewan McGregor. This is the brave new world that you dreamt of. Be very careful. You are still a prisoner here. Everything in this new world comes at cost. This is still my country. A Gentleman in Moscow, now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Only with the Paramount Plus with Showtime plan.